are you or are you not baptized in the Holy Spirit? Now, many people think that they're not baptized in the Holy Spirit because they didn't have an Acts chapter 2. You know, like they prayed for me. I went and looked in the mirror. There was no fire above my head. <laughs> Nothing going on. There was no mighty rushing wind in my house. You know, we're such feely people. Don't you always want to feel something? It's like, was that something? Did I feel anything? You know, we're always trying to. Or I didn't speak in an unknown tongue. You know, I've had people before going, uh, it's not tongues because I know what I'm saying. Uh, I had a woman who I prayed for to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said, now, is there a phrase? And she goes, yeah, but I know what it means. It's taksamika, which is, uh, think, which is Swedish for thanks of a million. Taksamika. Um, and so she said, it can't be. And I said, well, why don't you try just saying that? And so she did, and then she started speaking in tongues. But that's not the story. The, what I wanted to say is because you haven't spoken in tongues, or there is this, like, well, maybe I'm not truly baptized in the Holy Spirit. But we need to always be wary or very careful about experience, you know, waiting for an experience or for an expectation of an experience. Sometimes we have an experience, but it's not the one we expected, so we discount it. You know, we, we think it's going to be this, this one way. And because it's not that way, because don't we as women have expectations? We would get expectations about our birthday party, and if your husband throws it, it's not going to be what you think. <laughs> you say romantic evening to your husband, you plan it, that could be very disastrous. The thing is, is that we need to make sure that we're looking in the right area, that we're looking for the evidence of the Holy Spirit, not for the experience and not according to our expectations, but to evidence. Again, we're always looking for outward evidences. It's just the way we're built. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.3, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you but mighty in you, we're always looking for the external rather than the internal. And it's a danger to try to replicate experience. It takes our eyes off of Jesus and onto methodologies and formulas. And sometimes our faith is more in a formula or a methodology than in Jesus himself. Our expectation is more on a, the, you know, on a way of doing it, a means, rather than Jesus. But Jesus works individually with the individual, uniquely with each of us. And this is what he does. He works according to the need. Each of us has different emotional, physical, and mental needs. We all like different kinds of food. Some of you are milk chocolate people. Others of you are just simply dark chocolate. And some of you, I don't know who you are, but you don't like chocolate at all. (laughs) Jesus works according to the personality. We're all different. There's some that are going to be exuberant. There are some that are going to be very quiet and understated. He's going to work according to the personality. And he's going to work according to his purpose and his will. 
But it's, it's dangerous for us to go, well, this is the experience of Acts chapter 2, what I'm seeing there, and get our expectation that it's going to happen the exact same way. Aren't you happy, Claire, that it happened in Acts chapter 2? Those in the leaders' meeting know what I'm talking about. But it's not going to be the same way because God works individually. And it's dangerous to try to replicate it. I think that's what the Corinthians were trying to do. When we, Paul says, you know, you all get together and you're all speaking in tongues at the same time and you think that's evangelistic? No, the people in the community think you're crazy. He, because they're trying to replicate something. This was for the birth of the church. And we cannot replicate it. And it's dangerous to copy something. In Leviticus 9 and 10, you have the fire of God falling from heaven. And two of um, Aaron's sons get so excited, Nadab and Abihu, when they see the fire of God fall from heaven. And you know what they do? They try to replicate the fire from heaven. Instead of being part of God's fire, they're saying, oh, let's fill our censers with fire and let's replicate this. And they're struck dead. And God said, I am holy, and before those who serve me, I must be regarded as holy. We cannot try to replicate. We have to let the Holy Spirit come as he wants to. We see four different ways, at least, that Jesus healed the blind. As you're going through the Gospels, On one occasion, Jesus took the man by the hand and he led him out of the city to a private place and he healed him. On another occasion, in John chapter 9, Jesus made mud with his spit and and the dirt on the ground and he anointed the man's eyes and he told him to go wash at the pool of Siloam. Another place with blind Bartimaeus, Jesus simply spoke the word and Bartimaeus was healed. And yet at another occasion, Jesus heals a blind man, and he says to him, what do you see? And the man says, I see men like trees walking. And then Jesus touches him again and says, what do you see now? And he says, I see all things clearly. What if we thought it was a one-touch method, a one-word method? You see, Jesus does it once with mud. What if we said, oh, he heals with mud? We'd all be taking mud baths. You know, what if we said it's a word? Then somebody that was being healed by mud baths were like, I don't know. I never heard of that one before. I don't think so. And we'd be discounting each other's experience, right? But we see that Jesus does it in in different ways. And it's because he doesn't want us getting into methodologies and formulas. Because we as women love recipes. We want a recipe for how to raise our children how to love our husbands, you know, how to get along with our neighbors. You know, like, what are the steps? How, what do I turn the oven on to? We want recipes. And when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, there has to be simply an openness. This occasion is unique and to be set apart from all others. Why? Because it's the birth of the church. And those of you who have given birth know that birth is not like anything else that ever happens to you. And you can't replicate it. That kid's not going back in there. It's a one-time experience. Praise God. 
You know, the only child to ask how he was born was my C-section. The rest were natural. So I didn't mind answering him. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, they cut up in my stomach. And he's, he's looking at me. I didn't get that detailed. But, you know, he's looking at me and he goes, wow, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> yes, and I don't want you to do it again either. But this was the birth of the church. It was, it was unique for what God was about to do. It was going to establish, going to plant, and it was unique. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we learn that it was the day of Pentecost. It was a national holiday. It was one of three high holidays where all the men, every Jew, was to be, wherever he was from, was to be in Jerusalem. It was a time of bringing the first fruits of what God had blessed you with, the grain offering. You brought the very first part of your crop saying, God gave me this. It was a promise. God has given me this. He's going to give me the rest. It was a time of thanksgiving. It's also called the feast of thanksgiving. It's also called a thanksgiving offering, this first fruits. It was thankful for what God has done so far. Um, I'm just going to throw this in, but a friend of mine says, God's past faithfulness is the fodder for future faith. You know what he has done? We give thanksgiving for the first fruits. He's going to bring the rest of the fruits in. It's acknowledgement that everything that you have is a gift from God. This is Pentecost. It was 50 days after Passover. So significant. So significant that it would be 50 days after the Son of God gave his life for the sins of the world, that this time would come of the first fruits. What is going to be the fruit of what Jesus has established? We read that the believers, 120, were gathered together in the house. They were all of one accord, unified Now, we don't know that they were praying, but we know that they had prayed, don't we? But this doesn't say that they were praying. In fact, they could have been talking, but they were together, and they were unified, and they were waiting. They were waiting in that place, and and they were living by God's word. When suddenly or unexpectedly, right, without warning, not what they think was going to happen, you know, because they didn't know. They're just waiting. And they're not quite sure what they're waiting for, except for it's the promise of the Father and it's the Holy Spirit. And they know certain details. He's going to bring things back to remembrance. He's going to be our helper. He's going to comfort us. You know, it's to our advantage that Jesus goes away and this person or thing comes. But, they, you know, it's all a little bit blurry. They're not quite sure. When suddenly... They hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the house. I mean, it sounds like a DC-10 is landing on the roof. It's that loud. It's that, like, what in the world? Now, they didn't have DC-10s. They didn't have anything that would make that kind of noise in that day, that loud a clamor. And the noise is so loud, it's going to draw the rest of Jerusalem to see what is going on. It's the sound that draws everybody to this place. 
and it drew Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, those from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Crete, and all Arab empires. They all came together. And when these different Jews from these different places came to the sound, this is what they saw. They saw those that had been with Jesus with cloven tongues of fire or flames of fire looking like it's leaping off their heads. They're seeing this, but they're hearing in their own languages the wonderful works of God in their own, in an understandable, intelligible language. They are hearing the things that God has done. Perhaps it was the proclamation of the gospel. Perhaps they were hearing, God has sent his son who has died for your sins, but they're hearing in their own language. This was the birth of the church. The church was birthed through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it was a corporate baptism. We're told that they were all filled and began to speak as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit is over the church. The Holy Spirit gave birth to the church, and he now resides over the church. In Thessalonians, we're told that the Antichrist cannot make his appearance until that the Holy Spirit who keeps the church is taken out of the world. And the Holy Spirit is over the church, restraining the Antichrist, restraining evil. Right now, the Holy Spirit is in the world, restraining evil, convicting men of sins. Right now. Right now. In Revelation... We read about the seven spirits of the truth, seven being the completion. It is one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is reigning over all the church. The church was birthed, and the church is, is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. But the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit follows this experience, right? The experience is not the evidence, What follows is the evidence. Again, as we're going to read through Acts, as we're going to study Acts, we're going to see how individually the Holy Spirit works. We're going to see him work in a diversity of manners and even how he reaches and baptizes differently. But the first evidence of the Holy Spirit that we see is that men begin to speak of the wonderful works of God. That is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit when suddenly you just want to talk about what God has done. Maybe it's your own testimony. Maybe it's about that prodigal that's come back to Jesus. But when someone talks, you're just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I have to tell you what God's just done. I have to. I've had people that I didn't know before, not at Calvary, in in weird settings at coffee shops going, I'm sorry, I don't know if you're Christians, but you got to hear what Jesus just did. And you're like, spirit-filled, wow. You just have to tell somebody the wonderful works of God. 
The glory is that these men heard it in their own language. You see, you don't have to talk in an unknown tongue. You don't have to talk in Parthenian. You, you can talk in English. Because remember, it's intelligible to those who hear it. The Parthenians understand. Those from Cyrene understand. Those from Libya understand. It's intelligible to them. It's understandable, and it glorifies God. Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit would always glorify Jesus, always glorify God. So the first evidence will be a desire to proclaim the wonderful word of God. When you have a burning desire to tell people about what God has done in your life, when you can't take the credit for the good things that have happened, and you say it's not a dink. You're filled with the Spirit. When you talk in a way that people can understand, you're filled with the Spirit. Next, what we see, or the second evidence, is we see a scriptural understanding. Here's Peter, who's a Galilean. He did not go to a rabbinic school. He's not an order. But he is able to show scripturally what is going on. Somebody said, you know, again, in those days, the scriptures were on tablets. He's not walking around with a lot of scrolls going, oh, let me find it on the scroll. Because it wasn't easy. Because in those days, they did not have chapter and verse. Chapter and verse came later. So to find it on a scroll, these places, was not easy. He didn't pull up the scroll going, I know it's here somewhere. It's coming to him. It's coming to him. When? You have an ability. Have you ever had it where you're sharing the Lord and all these scriptures or you're talking to somebody and they're going through something and these scriptures keep flooding through you and you're like, I didn't know I knew that. I didn't know I knew that scripture. And it's just coming. You're like, wow, this is good stuff. That's the Holy Spirit. That's an evidence of the Holy Spirit. Peter is able to bring up the prophet Joel. How obscure is that? You know, in those days, in that religious climate, the prophets were less regarded than the law, the five books of the Pentateuch. So for him to be able to recall like that, the prophecy of Joel, Joel 2, 28 through 32, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will, shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is saying, get ready, because there's more coming. This is just the beginning. But what he wants to say to these people, one, this is the Spirit of God. Two, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. But he's able just to bring this up. He's saying the evidence of God's spirit as outlined in scripture is for men and for women. That it's going to come in unexpected ways. It's going to maybe come at times through visions, other times through dreams, times through prophecy or the proclamation of God's word, at times through blood and fire or the phenomena of what they saw resting on the heads of those they were looking at. Vapor of smoke, 
Remember, you've got that in the Old Testament when the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was like a vapor of smoke that was so thick that the priest couldn't be inside the um, temple or the tabernacle. Peter is saying, God's going to work in unexpected ways, just like Joel said. Again, to not get our eyes on one way or on just a formula or a methodology because the importance here is all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He then goes to the Psalms. He uses Psalms 25, Psalm 28. And Peter talks about David. He's able to say, David, you know, the king, the prophet. And he uses the testimony of David in the Psalms, also Psalm 16, to underscore the testimony of Jesus. I'm sorry, the Psalms. Verses 25 through 28, he's going to use the Psalms, not 25 through 28. I'm a little bit off today. I wonder why. Um, He's going to use Psalm 16. Psalm 16, to underscore the testimony of Jesus, to show that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Now, remember Cleopas and the other disciple in Luke chapter 24, they're walking with Jesus, and Jesus takes them, and we're told, he takes them from Genesis all the way through the Psalms and the prophets to show them how it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise again from the dead. So suddenly, Peter's got this scriptural proof. And when you read through the testimony of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, you see this phrase, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Jesus was fulfilling everything that was written of him. When he went to John the Baptist and said, you need to baptize me. John said, no, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. Jesus said, John, permit it to be so, for it is fitting for us to fulfill the scriptures. So you see that that Peter is pointing to the testimony of Jesus. And he is able to tell the testimony of Jesus through the Psalms and prove the resurrection of the dead. He's underscoring the fact in verses 29 through 34 that Jesus was not a victim. Even though it was wicked hands that crucified Jesus, he was not a victim. He was a victor. Now you might say, wait, Cheryl, come on, come on, come on. You've got a paradox going there. Why did God allow it? How could God be sovereignly in control and and they still be responsible for their actions? How is that possible? Well, let me tell you this. It's a divine paradox. Because here it is. God is 100% sovereign and men are 100% responsible for their actions. It's both. Are you okay with that? Because it's both. You are responsible before God, but God is sovereign. And he's going to work with his foreknowledge to make everything turn out according to his will. He knows. He knows the way that I will choose. They're responsible for what they did with Jesus. And yet, God already knew. And God foreordained it to cover our sins, to make a way of salvation for all of us. He says everything that happened was foretold and predetermined by God as evidence through scripture. He said, Jesus, he said, you know him, you have talked about him, you know his testimony. He was not a secret entity in Jerusalem, but he was a man attested to by God through miracles, wonders, signs in their midst. Those who were there knew the testimony of Jesus. Luke earlier in chapter 1 said, by many infallible proofs, they 
knew. But as Jesus said, they were refusing to see what they saw, feel what they felt, and hear what they heard. Their hardened hearts were keeping them from seeing, feeling, and hearing. But they knew. They knew. He says that Jesus was delivered to death by God's will, and they were still guilty before God because of their lawless hands. But he said, the same Jesus that you crucified, he is alive and he's living because it was impossible that death should hold him down. And Peter uses Psalm 60 to scripturally support the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I foresaw the Lord before me. He is at my right hand. He, I shall not be moved. He will not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. Jesus never corrupted. His body never decayed. Why? Because it was sinless, because death had no hold on him. Can't you almost see death struggling to hold Jesus? Like, mm, you know, and Jesus just getting greater and greater and greater until death goes, okay, I'm going to let this one go. I mean, death, no hold. Jesus broke the power of death. Do you know what a glory that is? There's no sting. My father's not in a grave. My father won't be in a grave. My father is in heaven. When he was going to heaven, my brother was with him and the nurses. And one of the nurses told me that they had the oxygen. um, And I had seen it earlier that day. They were keeping it on his finger to monitor how much, much oxygen. And they saw it going down from, you know, 93, 85, 75, just going down, down, down. She said, we saw his spirit leave his body. Because we're told, pneuma is a word for spirit. It also means breath. God breathed into man and he became a living spirit. That breath is the spirit who controls our breathing. God. And God said, this one's mine. He's leaving the body now. This body can no longer, this body can no longer represent Chuck Smith. No longer. So I'm going to give him a new body. Eternal in the heavens. Not made with hands. And I'm telling you, he vacated the premises. And he went into glory because Jesus conquered death. And that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, and it's It's the fruit of what Jesus has done. I am the resurrection and the life. No man who believes in me will ever die. No man. We are not destined to death, but to life. It says in Isaiah that we will get up from our beds and we will walk. It talks about singing and choirs in heaven. There's a life up there. There's things to do in heaven, and this has only been the training ground, and there's rewards, and I hope he's saving some of the presents till I get there. (laughs) Because I want to see some of the rewards. I do. I just, I love birthday parties and showers when they get to the presents. That's my favorite part. It was impossible that death should hold our Jesus And there's no objections. The crowd's like, well, I heard that he was stolen. No, there's no objections. Because that crowd knows. They know. 
because there's living witnesses. They know, and there's many infallible proofs. You're talking to a crowd that if there were any objections, they would have been raised right then. You're talking to a crowd that was present, knew what was going on, knew of Jesus, knew the Romans, knew what was going on, and there's no objections, none. And Peter boldly points to the deity of Jesus using Psalm 68, 18 and Psalm 110, 1. Remember again, Peter is unlearned, untrained fisherman, but here he is powerfully orating the scripture and proving the deity and messiahship of Jesus. I think that could be just your normal Calvary pastor. Untrained, uneducated, and they get up there. Like, I mean, like, you know. You know, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. What the crowd saw was evidence of Jesus' position in heaven at God's right hand. That's what Peter's saying. See the Holy Spirit? What you're hearing, what you're seeing is evidence that Jesus is on the right hand of the Father. And as he promised, he said, I go to the Father and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And it's to your advantage that I go away and that he comes. And Peter says, this is evidence that Jesus is right there on the right hand of God because we've got the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence. Then Peter called the crowd to repentance for their sin, for their rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, their culpability, and to faith, to believe and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, baptize, we get this idea of baptism, like, oh, they went down to, you know, they found the pool of Siloam, and they all went down and came up. No. To the Jewish mind, okay, Baptism, you don't find it in the Old Testament. Have you ever tried to find it? It's not there. The closest you can get is what? You can get name it. When Elisha says, you know, go dip in the Jordan River seven times, you'll come out clean from your leprosy. Who's baptized? A Gentile. Very good. A Gentile is baptized, not a Jew. Because in those days, baptism was only for Gentiles who wanted to be Jews. So when a Gentile wanted to proselytize, he says, I believe in the God of Israel. He was baptized, which meant he was shedding his Gentile identity and now fully identifying as a Jew and a son of Abraham. When John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's baptizing, he says, now, he was an enigma. The the Jews are like, what do you mean you're baptizing? That's for Gentiles. (laughs) This is only for Gentiles. Why are you baptizing Jews? And he says to them, don't say that we have Abraham as our father. Don't rest in that. You're all Gentiles. You're Jews, but you're Gentiles. You're outside the promises of God. And you need to repent of your sins and the sins of your forefathers. And you need to be re-identified with God. And get ready for your Jewish Messiah. See, he was bringing them back to the promise of Abraham. Not, Not the biological heritage of Abraham, but the promise of faith, which is in your seed, by your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's bringing them back to the promise of faith. So he calls them to be baptized in the name of Jesus and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive what's going on. Receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God within you. The Spirit of Jesus. We're told that 3,000 people responded to this invitation. Now, this scripture recall, understanding, and application is our second evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
When you've got scripture recall and you find the spirit bringing to your mind those things that you've read in the Bible, because you know we're forgetful, and as you get older, it gets worse. And you're saying things that you didn't know. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Next, spiritual discipline. Spiritual discipline. We find this in verse 42. We're told they continued fastly, uh, steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. How many of you have broken diets? <laughs> Come on, be honest. I see those hands. Okay? You didn't continue steadfastly, did you? It's so hard to continue steadfastly in anything. How many of you stopped making New Year's uh, resolutions because you kept breaking them? I mean, just like, why bother resolutions? You know, that's what I write out. Why bother resolutions? We read in verse 46, they continued daily. There is a steadfastness that comes into your life when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are now, you know, where you used to try really hard not to lose your temper and you were so excited when you only did it once a week? Now all of a sudden, it's continual. It's not happening, or it's only happening on rare occasions. The Holy Spirit establishes us. He keeps us from being tossed to and fro. We're no longer falling to sin. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to resist sin. He establishes you and gives you a steady walk. Four. Verse 42, there's a hunger for Jesus. Years ago, I had a neighbor named June, wonderful, wonderful Christian woman. Love this lady. And um, another neighbor of ours had gone into the hospital. She had had a, a slight stroke. And I had gone in to visit this other woman. And, you know, I was asking her, you know, about her relationship with Jesus, you know, have you been to church? What's going on in your life? And she's like, oh, yes, I believe June led me to Jesus. And I'm like, okay, great. So I go back to June. I said, okay, you led her to Jesus. She said, yes, but she's not filled with the Spirit. And she said, you know what? Because she has no appetite. And she said, when you don't have an appetite, you're not healthy. That was a big sign with my dad. Wednesday, my dad, who's I, you know, I, I would make a huge meal, and I tried to always make his favorite for the last couple of years, and we always would have a special dinner with my dad. And uh, he wasn't hungry. He didn't want to eat. A healthy appetite is a sign of a healthy body. And when you don't have a hunger for the Lord and for spiritual things, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Where there is no appetite, there is no filling. But you get this voracious appetite for Jesus when you're filled with the Spirit. They had an appetite to learn more about Jesus, and so they met to hear the apostles' doctrine. What was the apostles' doctrine? It was, and the word doctrine, didascalia, means teachings. Yeah, we get like, oh, doctrine, scary, scary. No, it's not. It just means teachings. It means what the Bible teaches. And the apostles were telling them what Jesus taught, and they were voracious to hear everything Jesus ever said and taught from the mouth of the disciples. When you get a voracious appetite to hear Bible studies, to know as much as you can about Jesus, you're filled with the Spirit. I I met a woman that I just instantly fell in love with. We just, oh, talk about the koinia. Um, She was telling me that for 20 years her husband was addicted to pornography. 
She's been married 37 years. The last 17 years, he has been free, free, free. But she said it began with the freeing, and he developed a voracious appetite for the Bible. She said every time you climb into his truck, he's listening to Chuck tapes. That's all he does. He works construction. He constantly listens to the Word of God. He can't get enough of the Word of God. He's got this voracious appetite. He has never gone back to the pornography. Never. In fact, he helps to set men free from pornography. He's praying about this ministry that he feels God's calling him into. But nobody who does that sin wants to be open and say, I was freed. Most men want to just, it's shameful. But he is open about it and how God set him free, but he listens. He's got this voracious appetite. She said, I was the Christian for 20 years in the house. He gets saved, gets his appetite. She said, within four years, he's, he knows more than I do. And I've studied for 20 years. She said, it was so God. But there's a voracious appetite to know God's word and all about Jesus. You know, when I first uh, found out that Brian Broderson liked me, because that's how it went, and I took a second look at him and realized he was really, 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 really cute. I wanted to know all, all about him, everything I could. I remember one day he said, I want you to meet my mom. And I'm like, yes, I want to. I peppered her with questions about Brian. I, just was, I think she liked me because I wanted to know all about Brian. She even brought out a box of his pictures. And he's like, come on. I'm like, no. You know, I want to I see every picture. I'll never forget this one day. He calls me up and he goes, I just want you to know I, I did something really special. I'm like, what? He goes, I cut all my old girlfriends out of all my pictures. And I threw them away. And now it's just pictures of me. You know what I said? No! I wanted to see the competition. You know? What was I up against? I, I never got to see. They were all gone. That's the kind of sick person I am. You know you feel the same way. But there's this voracious appetite to know God's word. What's the second hunger for? There's a hunger for fellowship. You want to be with other believers. Oh, you want to be at church. Remember some of you, when you first filled, you want to be at church every night of the week? And, and some of you are like, is there an afterglow? You know, you just want to be with other believers, and that's what they did, that they met together day after day. They craved fellowship. They wanted to be with other believers. They, they knew there was just that glory, that koinonia that is like nothing else when you're with other believers. Isn't that interesting how sometimes you'll go to another church, like in a different place, a different state, and you walk in and there's instant fellowship? You're like, how did my best friends come here in different outfits? You know, it's just a God thing. And there's that koinonia. And that's, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't like going to other countries. And I'm like, where are the Calvaries? Where are the Calvaries? I want to know where the church fellowship is. I feel so out of place until I walk in and meet other believers. And you're like, okay, this is so cool. But you crave fellowship. You're here probably because you're filled with the spirit and you're craving this. You want to be with other believers. You wanted to be in that group. You want to talk about Jesus. You're craving fellowship. That's an evidence that you are filled with the Spirit. When you are truly baptized in the Spirit, you love to meet, be around, minister to, bless, and help other believers. 
You just want to be with other believers. Then it says the breaking of bread. Communion. You want to keep in mind and never forget what Jesus has done for you. You want to keep that at the forefront. I have a friend named Ginny May, and she got this special set of Tupperware so she can keep the elements of communion with her at all times. She loves to just, when she, she works, sometimes she goes out to her car and she just has communion with Jesus. And she says, Lord, this is your moment. And I just want to remember that you died for my sins, that your body was broken for me, and that your blood cleanses me from every sin. And she just has these private communion. She wants to. She wants to have communion. When we want to commemorate the death of Jesus Christ for us, the sinless for the sinful, the righteous for the unrighteous, we're filled with the Spirit. You know, there's some people that say, don't talk to me about the death of Jesus. They say they're Christians, but like, don't talk to me about crosses or what Jesus did. That's barbaric. They're not filled with the Spirit. <laughs> Lay hands on them, be filled. No, don't do that. It's just me. They need to be filled because you know what? There's this desire to commemorate and thank Jesus for what he's done. For me, a sinner, a wretch like me. So they were doing the breaking of bread. There's a hunger for prayer. We're told that they continued in prayer. Communication with God. They love to pray with each other, to lift up the needs. From this moment on, they're going to always be praying. If there's a trial, they pray. If there's a glory, they pray. When they're just waiting on the Lord in Antioch, um, we'll find in chapter 13, they're praying. They're praying. These guys are like always praying. And there comes this discipline of prayer and a hunger for prayer. When prayer is kind of like, oh no, they're going to start praying. Or like, how long is this going to take? And there's no appetite for prayer. Are you filled with the Spirit? But when you want to pray, when you want to pray about everything, you're like, wait, I sense an opportunity for prayer. You know, for me, when I begin to be overwhelmed, like the person's telling me their problem, I'm going, oh no, oh no, oh God, oh, oh. It's like, I think we better pray. Duh. You know, but for me, it's like kind of like 10-second delay. But pray. Pray. When you've got, when you can't wait to pray. And, and you know, sometimes you meet these spirit-filled believers, and they've just gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they're just like, we can pray. You know, you're like, well, we're in the middle of a mall. I know. You're like, and there are people going back and forth. Cool. Like, okay, here we go. <laughs> you know? I remember going to TJ Maxx. And I felt the Holy Spirit, I know that sounds weird, tell me to go to TJ Maxx. <laughs> you might call it retail therapy. I feel it was the Holy Spirit. I went to TJ Maxx, and you know, I didn't need anything. I didn't have enough money to be in TJ Maxx, which is really poor. But I'm, I'm in there, and I see this woman. And I felt like the Lord said, this is the reason you came. And I walked up to her, and I said, I was supposed to meet you here. She said, I know. And I said, oh, Good. And she said, let's pray right now. She starts praying in the middle of TJ Maxx, like the major aisle that everybody walks in. And it was not a short prayer. And then it was my turn. We prayed right there in the middle of TJ Maxx. You know, when you're filled with the Spirit, you don't care who's looking. You need prayer, and you're going to do it. You know, I, I lo- you know, I think it's so funny that the government is like, no prayer in school. Yeah, right. I'm sorry. We're going to pray. 
and we're going to pray without ceasing. But when you've got that hunger to prayer, pray. Then the next, the next. So we talked about hunger. Let's go on. We're told in verse 43, an evidence of the spirit is the fear of God. When you have a great sense of awe, like when you sing how great thou art and you feel it, that sense of awe about God, the realization of the greatness of God, the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy and grace and love, and a sense of your own littleness, you're filled with the Spirit. When you say, Lord, without you, I can do nothing, you're filled with the Spirit. Next, when you have a generosity or love for other believers, verses 44 through 45, we're told these believers had all things in common. They were ready to give up their comforts and what they owned for others' comfort and others' well-being. We see this attitude in Philippians 2, 5, where Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And Paul is talking in Philippians chapter 2 about that mindset let nothing be done for vain glory, for self-centered motives, but for love, because we love the brethren, because Jesus loved us. There's a generosity and an overwhelming love for each other. Finally, there's joy. There's absolute joy. It says they ate their food, verse 46 and 47, with gladness and simplicity of heart. There is joy, uncontainable joy. The yesterday was a day of sadness and a day of joy. Sadness for me because my precious dad, I won't see him again in this life. But absolute joy because he entered the gates of heaven. And my son-in-law said when he came through, his first words were, All right. And I'll tell you why. My dad did Kelsey, my daughter's wedding, and she married John. And my dad, I could tell, he forgot John's last name. (laughs) And so he said, I want to present to you Mr. and Mrs. John. All right. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? How in Jesus we can be crying and laughing at the same time? Isn't that just, is that just so Jesus? Nobody's got that. We are like, yes, we sorrow, but we have such hope. I'm going to see my dad again, and he's going to have a full head of hair. (laughs) And I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be so fun. Somebody told me I'm going to have to stand in line. I do not like that. There are no lines in heaven. But there is joy. When you've got overflowing joy and everybody goes, I don't think you should be happy right now. And you've got joy. You've got the Holy Spirit. Because you know what it says in Galatians 6.22? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay, let's do it again. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Yeah. Oh, good. That's true. It's joy. It's joy. One more time. It's joy. Okay, yeah. It's joy. Joy is one of the overriding evidences of God's spirit at work in your life. Because we're told in in James, it gets really bizarre in James 1 because you fall into a trial and you count it joy. I mean, there's a joy. uh, This 
this incredible, incredible experience where Paul, filled with the spirit in prison, beaten, chained, dark, ugly, dirty, filthy place, could be singing with joy, not without an expectation that that prison would start shaking and he'd be free. There was no expectation of that. No doubt he thought this might be the end. Joy. Joy. I might be received up into heaven. Joy. Joy. You know, I have to say, sometimes I'm feeling joy. And I've gotten in trouble before. People have said, I don't see the fear of God in you. Why? Because I'm not depressed. Because I've got joy. I mean, one time I said something in communion and people laughed and this woman just took me to task. How dare you allow people to laugh before you give them the elements of Jesus Christ? I said they were laughing for joy of what Jesus had done. And all I was saying was I was a wretch and I didn't deserve it. I wasn't laughing at what he's done, but that he chose me. That's laughable. And that gives me extreme joy. That makes me laugh sometimes. I mean, do you ever say to God, you did not get a bargain? I do all the time. Are you sure about this? You know, thanks, but you didn't get a deal. I just want you to know that. I don't want Brian to know that, but I want you to know that. Joy is such an evidence. I can't help but smile. I just can't. It's like I was in line at Dean and DeLuca in New York, and the lady said, move the line. There's no place to move. It's like packed here, packed behind me, and I'm just sitting there, so I just smile at her. She goes, you wipe that stupid smile off your face or I'll jump over the counter and I'll knock it out. And my girls were with me. They're like, Mom, stop smiling. And I'm like, I can't. It's getting worse. (laughs) And they're like, Mom, you're going to get us killed. Like... And she's like, I said, stop smiling. And I mean, she's like, Aah! and I'm like, <laughs> it just, God's joy resides in me. I know I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. I know it. I know it because of the joy, the joy. I'm even sometimes trying to refuse joy. No, no, no. Don't give me that joy. Don't, don't. <laughs> It's not the time for joy. And it's like keeps coming. And it's overwhelming. And you're like, oh no, here it goes. Joy. Okay. The additions to the church were not the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Mm -mm. That's not the evidence of the Holy Spirit. God added to the church because they were filled with the Spirit. That's God's business. Who God brings into through the doors, that's God's business. But listen, it wasn't by programs or evangelistic outreaches. It was God blessed the church. It was God who did it as he filled them with the Spirit. But let me say this. Those who are filled with the Spirit are very, very attractive. Now, I don't mean attractive like you look like you've been redone by Bobby Brown. She's a makeup artist. I mean that you're attractive because of that spirit of joy, because of that hunger for the word of God, because of that inability to not speak the wonderful words, works of God. 
for that scripture recall that will comfort and give stability to the situation, for that, that desire to pray about everything, for that sense of wanting fellowship. That will make you so attractive. Going back to John the Baptist, Jesus said, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? Did you go to see somebody arrayed in beautiful garments and say, wow, look at that outfit? Is that what drew you? He said, no, because we all know that he was wearing camel skin and had a leather belt. Interesting outfit. Not, not, not unique, not pretty. He said, that's not why you went out. He, he said, did you go out because you wanted to see a reed in a wind? No, you didn't go out there for nothing. He's saying to the people, what drew you to John the Baptist? Think about it. And then he says to them, you went out there to see a man filled with the Spirit. See, there hadn't been a prophet in so long in Israel. And they heard that there was somebody filled with the Spirit. And they went out to see John the Baptist because he was filled with the Spirit. As you are filled with the Spirit, people are going to be attracted to you. They're going to want to know the source of your joy. And they're going to be at it. I told you this before, and I'll keep it quick. But when I was in England at the church, I smiled at this woman, and she followed me into church to find out why I smiled at her, and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. I smiled, and you know I smile at weird times. (laughs) It was, she came in and she said, I've never met people like this. What's going on here? And I knew it wasn't me. She was attracted to Jesus. So what is the evidence that you've been filled with the Spirit? Do you have an irresistible urge to talk about the wonderful works of God? Do you have a scriptural understanding and explanation that you just get so excited? Maybe the things that are going on in your life or somebody else's life, you're like, oh, oh, this is just like what it says in Psalm 12. You know, do you have that? Or like, oh my goodness, this is such the story of Job. I'm sorry, it's not a good story, but at the end, it's really happy. <laughs> do you have, like, it just comes to you? Like, I've got to tell this person, this is, this is what's going on. Do you have that? Boldness. Do you have boldness to stand up? Peter stood up in front of the very people he was afraid of. Discipline or steadfastness. Spiritual hunger of God. Love joy, and praise. If these evidences are absent or ebbing, you might say to me, Cheryl, I used to. I I can think of a time when that was really brimming in my life, but things aren't like that anymore. Well, you know what? The remedy is so simple. Ask, seek, knock, wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Wait in Jerusalem, your Jerusalem. Wait in prayer. Wait in the word of God. And ask and keep asking to be filled because God wants to baptize us in an unexpected, unique, and very individual way. And we need to be ready and open because God wants to baptize us so we will live lives way beyond ourselves, divine, not humanly possible, be witnesses and ready for his purposes and every exploit that he has for us. All we need to do is ask. Jesus said And it's recorded in Luke that if anyone asks, seeks, or knocks, 
he will give the Holy Spirit to all who ask. Let our lives show the residency and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, let's stand up and let's pray. Lord, we're here, and we want to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord, we want to be baptized in your Holy Spirit. We want all these evidences, Lord. We want it flowing and overflowing from our lives. And God, you just said it's as simple as asking, seeking, and knocking, and waiting. And Lord, we want to wait for you. Lord, we want to see your Spirit resident and operational in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.